I would invite you to turn with me now in your copies of God's Word to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before reading His Word. Father, we thank You for the privilege that it is week after week to gather as Your people as we finish out this year on this Sunday, uh, giving attention to Your Word. We ask that You would enable us uh, to give great attention to the eternal Word of truth preserved for us throughout the ages. That we would see here in this text from the book of Exodus uh, the need for our Savior. His work, the one who has come down and condescended in such weakness and humility to make us right with God the Father. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And one of the biggest mistakes that can be made in the time in which we live is to assume that the Bible is whatever I make it to be. That God is whomever I envision Him. That the Christian faith is true for me because it's something that helps me, but perhaps for another person living in a different time, living in a different place, there's another body of truth that works for them, and so therefore it's true for them. 
We've talked over the last few weeks during this Christmas season about the incarnation of our Savior, that the eternal Son of God came down in flesh to save us from our sins. And this is what sets the Christian faith apart from all others. It is historical in nature. It is a reasonable faith, grounded in events which have unfolded in space and time, events which are objective in their historical nature. And if these things have occurred outside of me, then they are true regardless of my response to them. And so while the incarnation is the central truth in Scripture, of course, in the incarnation, this is not the first time that God has truly, clearly, objectively revealed himself to mankind. One of the things that sets the true and living God apart from all other gods of this world is that our God is a personal God. He speaks with clarity and his people long to hear his voice. He sees into our lives and into our hearts, and His people derive great comfort from that truth. He knows our sin and misery and our desperate condition, and His people rejoice in His redemption. He is the God who hears the cries of His people, and His people long to pour out their hearts to Him. He is the God who always takes the initiative to act. And any time that he speaks, he reveals something about who he is. When he reveals his name, we learn essential things about his nature. When he reveals himself as Elohim, he shows himself to be the one who is sovereign over all. As El Elyon, he is the one who is God most high and sustainer of all. As El Shaddai, he is the God Almighty whose grace saves his people. And here in Exodus chapter 3, he is Yahweh, the one who hears the cries of his people, the one who knows their sufferings, the one who comes down to save, the eternal and the self-existent one. He is the great I Am. And this is revelation from God to Moses that, again, is objective in nature, historical, something that is outside of Moses The emphasis in verses 2 through 4 is upon what is seen. Moses sees the bush which is not consumed by fire. He turns aside to see this great sight. And so if you were there with Moses, if you were an under-shepherd learning from Moses' great shepherding skills, you would have seen the same thing that he saw. You would have heard the same thing that he heard as the Lord spoke to him from the bush. These are undeniable historical events. Now remember for just a moment what happened in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. The children of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt, and the hand of Pharaoh presses harder and harder down upon them. The Pharaoh decrees that all infant boys who are born to the children of Israel be thrown into the Nile River. But Moses' mother entrusts her son to the Lord who preserves him. And he is raised up as an adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses one day at age 40, as he is walking among his people, sees an opportunity to act. And presuming that the people will follow his leadership, he kills the Egyptian guard. 
But instead, he is rejected by his people and forced to flee to the desert of Midian. From there, he finds a new vocation in life as a shepherd, settles down with his wife and children, and another 40 long years pass. And so at this point in Moses' life, when the Lord appears to him from the burning bush and appoints him to lead the people out of slavery into freedom, he is 80 years old. I don't think very many of us are waiting until we hit the ripe old age of 80 before we set out to embark upon a new career choice. And no doubt Moses was living as though this was going to be how he would spend his final days here in the desert tending to sheep, a quiet and isolated life. It was a life that for him started with great potential, great expectations. No doubt he had high expectations of himself, and rightly so. He was privileged to the greatest education that the world had to offer at that time of history. But the Lord knows Moses needs to develop the heart of a shepherd if he is going to lead his people. What we learn in these narratives from the book of Exodus is that salvation is of the Lord. It is the Lord who works to save in his way, in his time. And it has nothing to do with Moses or his abilities. And so one day, a normal day like any other day, as Moses is tending to his sheep, he sees off in the distance... Not something that unusual in the desert, a a fire. But what was unusual, of course, was that the fire was not consumed. It did not burn itself out by consuming the bush. So what Moses sees is not a burning bush, but an unburning bush. A flame that does not consume the bush that it is within. Sinclair Ferguson points out, God characteristically does two things in the Bible in close proximity to one another. He acts and he speaks. He does something and then he finds a way of giving us the interpretation of that something. And these two things are found here together in Exodus chapter 3. Event and speech, both of which reveal who God is and what he is planning to do. So let's see how God, through event and speech, reveals himself to Moses. How the Lord, through event and speech, reveals himself to the children of Israel who, were, who will soon be redeemed. And how the same God reveals himself to us. Well, first, the Lord who speaks, the Lord who acts to reveal himself to us, shows himself to be the self-existent one. He is the self-existent Lord. Here the Lord reveals to us that which is most fundamental and essential to His divine nature. What theologians call the aseity of God. His self-existence. He is the independent one. He is in need of nothing or no one outside of Himself. Herman Bovink in his Reformed Dogmatics says He is an independent being whose essence is distinct from that of the universe. We cannot discover or know him by the powers of human intellect apart from revelation. And so while we can never know God exhaustively, nonetheless we can know him truly. We can know him accurately as he has revealed himself clearly to us. And he shows himself to be the one who is self-existent. 
And notice how God's self-existence is illustrated visually in the divine act of this unburning bush. If the flame of fire does not consume the bush, then it is not dependent upon the bush for its existence. And so it is a fire which is self-generating. It's a fire which will never burn out. It has no beginning and it has no end. He is the everlasting one. He is in need of nothing outside of himself for his existence. He did not come to be, nor does he continue to be, because of something outside of himself. And if the fire does not need the bush to sustain its existence, then there is nothing outside of the fire that can extinguish it. No matter what happens, he will never end. And God says as much to Moses about his eternal, self-existent nature in verse 14. I am who I am. As the eternal and self-existent one, he simply is. There has never been a time in which he was not. There will never be a time in which he ceases to be. He is the absolute, independent one. He is the transcendent God who is over all, above all, separate and distinct from everything that he has made. Listen to what we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. As John writes to the seven churches, he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Our God never learns new things. He never adapts to his surroundings. He never ages. He never tires. He never gets the seasonal illness. He never sort of evolves with man, as some might say. Instead, he is the self-existent triune God of the universe. Scott Oliphant, in his book, God With Us, says he is the I Am. He depends on nothing to be who he is. Not only so, but his name attaches to his character in such a way that there is no possible way that he could be anyone else or that he could give up who and what he is. To do that would be to give up his very name. It would be to move from being the I am to being dependent on something else. If the Lord had announced his name to Moses, for example, as I am your God, or as I am love, or something other than himself, then his character would be such that it would depend on something other than himself to be what it is. God would then be essentially dependent. There is nothing in God's essential nature that he can lay aside. He is the most free in his nature and the most bound in who he is. He is the unchangeable one, And it is impossible for him to be anything other than who he is. Well, how does this help us? How does the self-existent, unchanging, eternal nature of God help us? Why is this such an important thing for us to understand and to delight in? Well, we have a beginning and we have an end. Everything in our world of sense perception has a beginning and an end, and it boggles the mind to try to conceive of the eternal, self-existent one, for the finite cannot contain the infinite. Our minds simply cannot grasp that which is self-existent. And because everything around us has a beginning and an end, 
from the passing of every single day, from morning to night, from the rise and fall of nations throughout human history, from the beginning of life to death itself, the world around us is unstable, and we are at all times dependent. But we belong to a God, and we serve a God who is in need of nothing outside of himself. Recall how Moses articulates this truth in Psalm 90, our call to worship this morning. It was there in verses 1 and 2 that we read, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Moses goes on in that psalm, in Psalm 90, to draw a contrast between the unchanging nature of God and everything else, everything else which does change. And we'll see this more in a moment, but this is a contrast which shows that God is in a category unto himself. And here's the comfort of this revelation to Moses. He is being sent back to Pharaoh who is considered godlike, but Pharaoh had a beginning and Pharaoh will have an end. Moses needs to remember who he is dealing with. Moses has the infinite, eternal, self-existent, never-changing God with him. And as impressive as Pharaoh might be, as powerful as Egypt might seem, he is just a mortal man like everyone else who will one day die. But the Lord lives on forever and ever. Pharaoh cannot speak without taking a breath. Pharaoh cannot live without eating and drinking. He cannot reason without resting. He is at all times dependent, and he cannot break out of his dependence, whereas the great I am is in need of nothing. Now we hear of this truth regularly, but the comfort to our lives comes, you see, when we allow the theological reality of God's self-existence to sink in deep into our hearts. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Isaiah 54, verse 10, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isn't this absolutely remarkable? Everything that you think is solid in life could be gone in a moment. Everything that you tend to rely upon for safety and security could pass away instantly. Your health, your family, your friends. Your job, your finances, literally the earth under your feet could give way. But your God remains and you can rest in his everlasting arms. He is self-existent. He is the eternal one. He is the independent and unchanging God. And he is ours. What else do we learn about this great God? Well, second, He is the Holy One. Well, where, where do we see the holiness of God as the Lord reveals Himself to Moses in this text? 
Well, God could have chosen to reveal himself to Moses from the bush in any number of ways. Why fire and not something else? Well, the fire is a visible manifestation of the holy nature of the Lord God. In his holiness, he is unique. He is alone in his own category of existence. He is absolutely pure, and everything he does is right and good and perfect. The holy fire of the Lord that Moses sees across the way is a summons for him to come into his presence. When Moses sees the fire of the Lord, it draws him closer. And yet at the same time, the fire is a warning, a warning for him to come with reverence and with awe, not to come with presumption. As the Holy One, the Lord is in a category all by Himself. Listen to the unique nature of our Holy God. Later in Exodus in chapter 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Psalm 71, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have, gone, have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? Psalm 86, verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Psalm 113, The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? In Isaiah chapter 40, Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. The holiness of the Lord is revealed not only visually from the fire itself, but in the words that Moses or that the Lord speaks to Moses. In verse 5, the Lord tells Moses to remove his sandals, for he is standing on holy ground. Remove his sandals as an act of reverence. There is nothing inherently special about this particular piece of ground, but what makes it holy is the presence of the Holy One. Just as the ground is holy because the Lord is here in a special and intimate way as he converses with Moses, so God's people are to be holy themselves as God comes to dwell in their midst. And the holy Lord God goes on to speak with words of authority. He has the right to speak with such words of authority, for he is the holy one. As the holy God, he is the standard of righteousness. And he alone is able to distinguish oppression from freedom, suffering from blessing, cruelty from kindness. The standard of morality and truth lies within the very nature of God for He is the Holy One. And because He is unchangeable, it is a holy standard that is unchangeable. He determines truth from error, right from wrong. And when He reveals those categories, they remain as such truths for all time. He speaks and He establishes the standard of righteousness. He speaks words of truth and He is to be believed Entrusted. He is to be worshiped and adored. 
So he is the self-existent one, separate and distinct from all that he has made. He is the Holy One who is to be worshipped with great reverence and awe. And third, He is the Lord who will come to dwell among His people. So on the one hand, the fire does not depend upon the bush for its existence, while at the same time, the fire does not consume the bush. If the fire does not need the bush for its existence then it was not necessary for the fire to be within the bush. It could have hovered over the bush or next to the bush. But instead, it is within without consuming it. That which is created remains separate from the Creator, and yet the creation remains intact and unharmed. And here is this remarkable truth. The Lord God is holy and righteous. He is pure and undefiled. We read in such places as Deuteronomy chapter 4, 24 and Hebrews 12, 29 that our God is a consuming fire. Now, a consuming fire, by definition, destroys anything that it comes into contact with. Listen to Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? The one who acknowledges his sin, you see, the one who has an accurate view of himself, senses this tension. There is a desire to be in the presence of the Holy One, and yet there is a recognition that we cannot stand in the presence of the One who is the all-consuming fire. In verse 6, when the Lord reveals His covenant nature to Moses... As the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses hides his face, for he is afraid to look at the Lord. Yet the Lord goes on to assure Moses that he is not only the transcendent, holy, all-consuming fire, but he is also the one who, because he has bound himself in covenant relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the God who sees, he is the God who hears, he is the God who knows He is the one who will come in deliverance. I am the God who has seen the affliction of my people. I hear their cries. I know their suffering. In verse 8, I have come down to deliver. And later on in the book of Exodus, the Lord says that He will come down and dwell among His people. And in fact, when the tabernacle is completed... The presence of the Lord is there in visible manifestation as He makes good upon those promises coming to dwell in the midst of His people. It is a divine condescension, a coming down not only to deliver, but a coming down to dwell amidst His chosen people. This brings us to our final point this morning. And that is the way in which he will dwell among his people. The way in which he will make good upon these promises that he has made, not only to Moses, but to his forefathers. How does God make good upon these promises that he will come to dwell among his people? How does he make good upon these promises that he will redeem them? How can we stand in the presence of such a great and holy and powerful and majestic God? How can the fact that God is an all-consuming fire possibly be a good thing? 
Well, first, by recognizing that it is by divine initiative that he comes to dwell with his people. Just as revelation is something that starts with God and we can only know him as he reveals himself to us, so any activity on God's part in creation is his initiative. He is the one who sees, hears, knows, and acts. This decisive intervention begins with God. And while fire has destructive power, it also has the ability to purify. A fire refines. A fire conforms you. You don't conform a fire. He is the God who condescends, who comes down to us in our weak, helpless, and needy state. Again, He comes down to alleviate the affliction of His people. He comes down to deliver them. He comes down to empower Moses. He comes down to dwell in their midst. No one persuades God to come down. No one convinces Him that this is something that He ought to do. But He alone purposes to come down. And second, He comes to dwell among them by virtue of covenantal fulfillment. God points back to covenant promises that he made with Moses' forefathers, not only in verse 6, but in verse 15. There we read again, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Notice that when he says, this is my name forever, he is referring not only to his name as the great I am, but he is also alluding to the fact that he is this covenant God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he is to be remembered not only as the great I am, the self-existent, eternal one, But he is also to be remembered as the faithful covenant God who of his own volition has bound himself to his people. And so he speaks, he appears, and he makes good upon his covenant promises. And it's a promise to work for their deliverance. A promise, as he says in verse 12, that they will come back to this place. A location of freedom in which they will be free from oppression and be enabled to worship the Lord God. There is so much more going on here than deliverance from foreign bondage. Gerhardus Vaz points out that ever since this Exodus event, redemption has attached to itself this imagery of enslavement to an alien power and freedom through Christ Jesus from that bondage. In John chapter 8, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Romans chapter 6, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In Romans 8, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. And so redemption is deliverance, not simply from the oppression of the Egyptians, but deliverance from the realm of sin and evil and death. 
So it is the Lord himself who determines to dwell among his people. It is because of covenant promises that he comes in their midst. And it is ultimately through the person and work of the Lord Jesus that he fulfills these promises. You see, in verse 2, it is the angel of the Lord who appears speaking to Moses from the bush. But as this angel of the Lord goes on to speak with Moses, it becomes clear that this is the Lord himself speaking with divine authority. I am who I am. This is no mere angel, but this is the Lord God, the creator himself speaking to Moses. And Jesus takes upon himself this divine, eternal, self-existent language. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 18, 6, when Jesus is in the garden, betrayed by Judas, and the Roman guards come to arrest him, he simply says, I am. And when he says that, the Roman guards cannot help but bow before him. You simply cannot miss the claim to divinity. Jesus is claiming to be the eternal one. He is claiming to be the one who spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 from the unburning bush. He is claiming to be the one who works redemption for the children of Israel. He is claiming to be the one in whom we find life alone. And the teachers of the law who listened to Jesus as he took those I am words upon his lips... They understood he was making a claim to divinity. This is why they picked up stones to kill him and accused him of blasphemy. Jesus is the great I am who has come down to dwell among his people and to save them from their sins. Well, finally, there is a calling of this text upon Moses and there is a calling of this text upon us. There's a great deal of hesitation on Moses' part You heard it in the narrative. He doesn't want to do what the Lord calls him to do. Well, that's another sermon for another time. But every reason that Moses gives, every reason he can possibly come up with as to why this is just a bad idea, the Lord counters his argument. It's not about you, Moses, the Lord says. It's about me. Believe me. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trusting in the timing of the Lord is such a crucial thing for us to learn. Because from a human perspective, isn't God just making things more difficult by delaying? 
It would have made a lot more sense, humanly speaking, for the people to rise up with Moses when he killed that Egyptian guard. He was a bit younger, at least then. He wasn't 80. Then he was 40. Then he had some credibility. He had some credentials. But why in the world would they follow an 80-year-old man who's been tending sheep for the last 40 years? It makes absolutely no sense, humanly speaking, for God to wait. It just becomes more difficult and yet more glorious when redemption is revealed. How often in our own lives do we tend toward despair, perhaps questioning the Lord's timing, wondering if He really knows what He's doing? Moses saw with his own eyes and yet still doubted. He was called to trust in the Lord. He was called to look with eyes of faith. And he soon saw the Lord make good upon his promises when he delivered his people. We too are called to look at our present struggles through this life with eyes of faith. Eyes that are forward looking and eyes that will one day behold the great I am in all of his radiant glory. Here as we close these words from Hebrews 9 verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await for His return. Amen.